You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is John Mendez. John Mendez is a 27-year veteran of the CIA, and during that entire time, she is in what is known as the Office of Technical Services, and that was the office that embodied Q, the office that provided disguises and forged uh, different documentation, created gadgets, dealt with the case officers, and were involved in the front lines of operations. Uh, both she and her husband, Tony, uh, uniquely held the position of chief of disguise. And, of course, chief of disguise meant more than just disguise. It had to do with a lot of other things as well. Uh, Jonna, delighted to have you here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I think one of the things I'd, I'd, I'd like to kick off with this, and that is you are one of those women who began life at CIA as a secretary because that's, that's what they would hire you at. And I think there were a number of women who did that and, like you, rose to very senior positions. And I wonder if you would comment on that as we start. Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, most women uh, of my generation um, and, and before who came into the CIA came in as secretaries. Your first real test, I, I always thought, was to see how long it took you to get out of that position. Um, a lot of women wanted to be secretaries, and it was fine. And I started out that way. I, I was really good. I was a fast typist. I was, uh, was a good secretary. And for a while, I could actually help these, these young officers, maybe who didn't have writing skills. I could help them. Uh, they could dictate to me. I could type it because I was a very fast typist. Um, and the reports were a lot better, and their, um, their, their feedback was a lot better. But I got to a point where I worked for the um, boss of a very large office, um, I guess the number's classified, but it was a really big office. I worked for one man, and he didn't have any work. He, uh, he did everything verbally. He didn't need a secretary. He taught me uh, how to do the New York Times crossword puzzle in ink within um, a couple of hours, and that was fun for a while. But 
we got to a point where I told him I was just so bored. I thought that I, I would I would leave. Um, I could see the Smithsonian uh, Castle from my from my office, from the window, and I said, I know there's there's some work over there that would be interesting, that would be engaging. So he said, Why don't you take some of the courses we offer? We were the Q. We were the James Bond um, gadget office in CIA. We did cameras. We did all kinds of things. He said. You like photography? Take some photo courses, and um, so I did. And the first photo course was um, was on a landing strip south of Washington D.C. with a little twin-engine plane. First day of the first course, it was a man on a ladder painting out the tail number, so they couldn't report us. They had thoughtfully taken the uh, the doors off the plane, and there was a harness inside that was for me, and a, uh, a headphone set for me, and. Um, a 35 millimeter camera with a really long lens for me, and off we went. We flew around everywhere, shooting you know, antennas, shooting anything. And then that night was the first night in the big dark rooms with these uh, safe lights on, big band music playing, and we're sloshing these pictures around in the soup. And I said, this is the first day of my career at CIA. And it really was. That's when I think my career started. And I, be, I went on to become a photo operations officer and traveled the world doing lots of interesting And photo operations met in many cases working very closely with case officers or on your own assignment doing what we would call clandestine or covert photography. And before we leave this, you know, there are a lot of young people we now know that listen to, to our spy cast. Would you say that the, the barrier, the hurdles are the same for young women today or is it different? Oh, it's different. I teach courses to um, to CIA employees today, and I'm always talking to them to find out how has it changed. Um, the women, the young women that are coming in, are coming in at a professional level, and they're coming in based on their training and their credentials from school or their their previous work experience, and they're they're brought in just pretty much on par with the men. Um, and my understanding is that the they rise very. The promotion patterns are very similar to the men's, with one small exception, which Peter, you may, you've probably always heard this, and that is um, field operations. A lot of the women still say that they they don't rise as fast in that in that area of the work as the men do. You know, as you look back on that period, is there any particular woman or women that sort of stand out in your mind as being a model for you, or who's sort of even today might might be a, an icon of, of what, what women could do even then. Well, you know, back then, we weren't looking over our shoulders. There was no history to study. There were no courses given where you could, you could find out who your role models might be. We, we, uh, the training that they receive today, we do talk to them historically about some of the women who, who were major, but there was this, there was uh, one woman who was Bill Donovan's um, executive secretary, her name was Eloise Page, and she went from that original secretarial assignment to become the, the first uh, female chief of station, the, the highest graded woman in the CIA. She broke through all the glass ceilings at the CIA before they were even called glass ceilings. She didn't know anything was there, she just shot through them, and she would make a remarkable um, uh, role model. Well, I think that's terrific. Let me just step back for a moment and look at, at some of your, your actual field work. So much of your work was in the field. Um, and I wonder if there's any 
particular uh, instances you could share with us of, of operations that either were humorous or stand out in your mind as highly risky or uh, something that you, you would want to include in, in a description of your work? When we wrote our book, Spy Dust, um, it had to go through that publication review. And you know, whenever we're talking publicly, you're always just a little wanting to stay inside the bounds of what we can say. So I know when I talk about the, the details that were approved in that book, I can discuss them in this venue or any other. And there was an operation in that book. It was, a, it was one of the scariest operations I think I was ever part of. We were, um, there was a team and we were going into, um, we were working overseas. The work was always overseas. We were making an entry operation into an area that we should never have been in. We didn't look right to go in there. We looked completely wrong. And as a disguise officer, my job was to make everyone look like the locals. Uh, and I did that. And then when we went into this building, the team removed all their disguise materials so that they could work better. And, and one of the things I was doing was making sure that everything was straight so they put, back, they put the right materials back on. Um, and I watched this thing happen where they, they went in and uh, extracted a machine from that building and um, and we went dashing out of there and I really thought maybe they were coming after us with guns but they were not. It was a very exciting, very successful, uh, very important operation and typically you'd go home the next day, you couldn't tell anybody where you'd been, what you'd done, you might even read a headline in the newspaper and you go, oh that's great, but you couldn't, you couldn't acknowledge it. That was one of the hard things about working there. So your stomach was still churning, but you had to keep your mouth shut. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, one of the things that people often ask here in the museum is they look at our artifacts, and, and, and many of them are things that you would have had to do with concealed cameras, concealed listening devices, concealed writing devices. These are all things that you had experience with. And they often, they often ask, yeah, but is it like, what do you, you don't have anything here from today. And I said, yes, that's right, because <laughs> it's classified. But I always encourage them to look at whatever you're looking at and just know it's like military technology. In other words, whatever we've got, we're going to develop something faster, more accurate, uh, more concealable. And I, I don't know how f familiar you are with the, let's call it the discipline, the technology discipline is since you've left. But I'd appreciate your comments on what you think case officers and people like you are using today. I know you can't divulge anything that's classified, just but, but even your general comment would be very helpful. Well, you know, in this technical office, um, OTS, that we worked in, all kinds of disciplines were represented. In today's world, in pop culture, everybody thinks that it's the latest, the greatest, the newest, the smallest, the, you know, with, this, with, the, with the biggest memory capacity, that that's what we're using. But I would say, first of all, that a lot of things in the museum are still in use today. There's something called a microdot. I don't know how far back that goes, but it's ancient. It's a photographic process. You reduce a page down 400 times, becomes a tiny dot. You can put it anywhere. It's always been used because it's so secure, and I would say that today it's, it's as secure as almost any other means of communication. Um, there are a lot of those technologies, secret writing. Um, secret writing, if in the right situation, would be a wonderful way 
to be in communication with your agent. So you can't say that we're not using the, the old techniques. The really good ones will last forever. They'll always be in use. As far as what they're doing in the new technologies, when you get into nanotechnology, it starts getting away from me today. Uh, I was never that strong in electronics. But I, I'm, for instance, small cameras, which is where a lot of my interest was focused. The whole nature of photography has changed since I left. Everything is digital. Everything is smaller, tiny, smaller, tiny. When I left, we could very easily put a camera in a button on a coat. We could put a camera in a, in a, in a Mont Blanc pin. We could put it in a lipstick. We could put it anywhere. They didn't have to get them much smaller, actually. Small wasn't really the problem then. Um, probably concealing them and getting them through these, these borders, these electronic uh, detection um, schemes that are out there, that would be the problem. I'm not, I'm not sure I know where it's going. Disguise, I know disguise can always get better and better and better, more realistic, easier to wear, more convincing, um, and I'm sure that that has happened. The, uh, I, I think it's interesting, and look at the gadgetry, that some of the high-profile cases in our country run against us by the Soviets, later the Russians, like the Robert Hansen case and the Rick Ames case, that the the spycraft, if you will, that was used was pretty basic. It was signals, chalk marks on phone poles and dead drop sites and so forth. Uh, you know, another thing that people will often ask here uh, when we're taking them through the museum, they always want to know. Now, you know, I see all this stuff in the James Bond films and in the TV shows and so forth. How realistic is that? And I make my comment, but yours would be a more informed comment. Well, I think it is it is highly entertaining, but not realistic at all. James Bond's goal is completely different than, than an actual espionage officer. James wants to blow it up. You know, he wants to shoot it up first, and then he wants to blow it up. Our goal was quite different. We wanted to get the intelligence at, quietly, under the radar. My husband Tony always says it was like it was like you wanted to rob the bank every week but you didn't want them to know you had been there because you were coming back next week for more. Um, and, and you would say, well, in my mind, that's, that's every bit as interesting as blowing the place up on the way out. I think they could make entertaining movies. Talking about the, the mental part of uh, how you plan an operation, how you do it successfully, how you don't rattle anything. Uh, you take you take the, the the photographs to the president of the United States, and you say this is it. This is what they're doing, and no one ever knows that they've been hacked into, so to speak. I think there was an older show that came close to what you're describing, and that was Mission Impossible. Yeah. Where the where the the role was to get away with things and to actually uh, carry out a deception, um, <clears throat> and I think that that that's sort of a model of of what you were talking about. I've often heard uh, from both. CIA people and KGB people that both CIA and the KGB used to watch Mission Impossible and the KGB always thought we had all that stuff but of course both the KGB and CIA were going to their offices like yours and say could we have one of those was that's was exactly exactly <laughs> right we had uh, duty officers weekend duty officers I'm sure you had them too um, and they one of their assignments in our office was to watch those shows because you case officers would be calling us on Monday saying can we do that? And in fact, I think what surprises people is that on occasion, we built new 
equipment based on based on what had been seen. Um, Tony tells a story about getting a call from Bill Casey when he was the head of CIA, and he had just seen Goldfinger. And uh, there was a point in the movie where um, where there's facial recognition, and Casey called Tony as, because that would have come under his division's uh, responsibility at CIA and said, can we do this? And Tony said, we cannot. And Bill Casey said, well, I think we should get some men on it. I think that we should. And that began the research that, that has led to the present situation. And we presented this here in the museum about a year ago. Uh, there's some work going on at DARPA, some work going on at the University of Maryland. They are, they're coming up with the three finalists in the uh, facial recognition field. And I believe that started with Goldfinger in that call from Bill Casey. Yes, it's like the old Dick Tracy watch, and now we all have cell phones. Yeah. Which have cameras in them. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't we have given something for that? I want to, uh, I want to go back and into your, into your memory, and and ask you if you would share a story with us that I have heard told about you, and that was a, a visit that you made to a rather famous place right here in Washington D.C. Oh yes. I love this story. Uh, this was, every, they say you get 15 minutes of, of fame. This was my 15 minutes of very secret fame. Only a couple of people even knew that this happened. But when I was working in disguise, when I was chief of disguise, it was 10 years after my husband had been chief of disguise. And he had started a project that came to maturity while I was there. It was a new disguise. And so I had one made for me and I uh, took it to the head of the CIA it was Judge Webster and I said this is this is as good as it gets right now and he said that's amazing he said let's take this to the president and I said well I can't take this one this one makes me a man uh, makes me African-American and I can't walk or talk or convince anybody in the world that I am a black male he said we'll make another one so we did we went back to the labs, and this one I got to help design. Um, and guess what? When we got done with this one, I was uh, beautiful. I was very pretty. I was about 15, 20 years younger, and I had the best hairdo I've ever had in my entire life. And so um, we drove, went to Judge Webster's house. He had a little dog that met me at the door, like a little chihuahua, and it was barking. That dog didn't like me. I went in a powder room. I got all changed. Came out to have a cup of coffee with him. The dog loved me. The dog loved the new me. And we went to the White House, and we got stuck outside the Oval Office because whatever was going on was going long. And so I was standing in a room full of men, laughing and joking and talking. And, uh, and there I was, feeling like I wanted to get this over with. And then we finally went into the Oval Office. Uh, I was the second person to brief the president. Now, this was the pr first President Bush, so he had been the DCI, he had been head of CIA. And I reminded him of some work we had done for him in the disguise area. I said, so what I'm wearing now is the latest and the greatest. I said, I'm going to take it off and show it to you. He said, oh, don't, don't take it off. And he got up from behind his, his desk and he came out and he walked around me. And then he went back and he sat down. He said, take it off. So I did. John Sununu was sitting next to me, not paying any attention. He's making notes for what he's gonna say to the president. And out of the corner of his eye, he didn't know what he 
actually saw, but he almost fell off his chair. There was a photographer in the room walking around the whole time. Ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. So once I took it off and he admired it and, uh, and I went out to the secretary's office where that little dog, that Millie and her puppies were out there, the White House photographer came out. It was a woman. And she said, what did you do? And I said, well, I think you photographed it. She said, well, I did, but I don't know what you did. I said, you'll have to look at the photographs, classified. It took us um, 10 years to get a copy of that photograph. And in the photograph, anything that was classified was airbrushed out of it. So I have in my library a picture of me sitting across the desk from the president with my hand in the air. And it looks like I'm lecturing him because the thing I was holding has been removed. And I have people coming through my house and they look at that picture and they say, that's, that's a really interesting picture. They just always, I think they wonder, what were you saying to him? But they never ask. And that's my, my 15 minutes of secret fame. So then now, when we see President Bush and we somehow, we see him like once a year somewhere, he's in a place where we're in a place. I mean, we're never sitting at the table with him, but whenever he sees my face, he doesn't know who I am. Uh, and he doesn't really remember what happened. But he just breaks out in a big grin every time he sees me. He remembers that something happened and he liked it. And so I always get a great big smile from the president whenever I'm in his presence. That's a wonderful story. It's sort of one of, <clears throat> one of life's peak moments. It was a great moment. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that uh, people who come to the museum and also the, our listening audience, which includes a number of young people, and someone who's been, was in the agency for 27 years, had a very distinguished career, <clears throat> and now do a, spend a great deal of time both writing and lecturing, teaching about intelligence. I, I, I would really, I think people in the audience would appreciate any word that you might have, both how you look back on your career and what you would say to people considering a career in the national security field, in intelligence, in CIA. We get asked that a lot. Um, I thought it was an amazing opportunity to work for your government, to see the world, to deal with people all over the world, to make a difference. And you know, sometimes the thing I loved about the job was you could make a difference, you know this, very directly. You would know the next day if you made a difference. I mean. You, you could, what did we used to say? You could almost touch the wire working there. You could get pretty close to, you're not running the world, don't get me wrong, but you can make a big difference. I found that very, very satisfying. I think it's honorable work. Um, I, th I think a lot of people don't understand the professionalism that goes into being a spy. I think some people used to think it was some guys in a bar kind of making a plan and going out and executing a plan. It's you, you know, Peter, that it's, it's very structured, it's very organized. It's one reason we wanted to write those books is, is to show that, to show the way it works. Uh, I have a lot of um, mothers of young girls who are interested ask me, would you, um, if you had a daughter, would you recommend to your daughter to do this work? And I absolutely would. And there are so many aspects of it. You can do everything from be a linguist, you can be an analyst. If, whatever your skills are, you can typically bring them inside and find a place for them. I think it's, uh, it's really important. Well, that's very, I think, inspirational. Uh, why don't we end on a light note? What was the funniest thing that happened to you? 
oh, do I have funny? <laughs> funny. Well, funny gets a little complicated. When you worked, uh, when I worked overseas, I never used my true name on paper. Even at work, I never used my true name. I had a working name. And uh, on Saturdays, we'd have to sign in at the, in the lobby of, if, if you were working in an embassy, you'd sign in. It was a sign-in book by the Marine Guard. And so you'd go in on Saturday morning, usually pretty early, and you'd, you'd sign in, you'd go upstairs and do whatever you had to do on Saturday morning and leave. Well, in this particular place, there was, um, it was a large office, and uh, there were always names crossed out in the sign-in book. And, you know, if you just kind of back up and look at that and you think, who, who would come into the United States Embassy on a Saturday morning, sign their name, and cross it out? And uh, then I did it one morning. Um, uh, you know, it was a late night, and there was a lot going on. Signed the wrong name, and uh, I just always thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. John Mendez, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a delight talking with you. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.